Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to take it out and open it to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, if you are super cool and wear skinny jeans and Tom's shoes and you have an iPad, uh, you can also take that out and turn that on as long as you promise not to Twitter, read magazines, and play Angry Birds while I'm up here talking, that will be fine. When your finger is doing this, I know what you're doing, okay? I can see that from up here, so if you'll promise not to do that, you can use that. 1 Peter chapter 3, I want to read to you the first seven verses of this chapter as our text for this morning. And so you listen here as I read to you, reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse five, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is terrifying or frightening. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I told you a couple weeks ago that I could not imagine a more unpopular topic than the one I was preaching on, submission to authority. I lied. <laughs> this would be a more unpopular topic. This passage really ought to have a wick coming out of it. It's like a powder keg, the way this blows up. Uh, I will acknowledge to you that it does not matter what I say about this passage this morning, I am going to get beaten like a pinata. I realize that. But don't hate me. Don't hate me. I'm just the mail carrier. I'm not the mail writer. And I'm working my way through this book, and I can't just skip this passage. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we work our way through books of the Bible, because then it becomes less about what I think you need to hear and less about what you think you need to hear and more about what God thinks we need to hear. If we're committed to the teachings of the Bible, that means we go through them and we give weight to what God gives weight to. So I, I, again, I would say, 
I'm going to do my best to explain to you what this means, but really realize that if we're going to be a church that's built around the word and not around the personality of the pastor and not around the whims of the people, then this is the kind of stuff that we go through. All right, so, 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 so we're going to do it. People look at this passage and they think, this is crazy. It is outdated. It is backwards. We have moved way beyond this as a culture. Well, I would encourage you first just to start by thinking about what it means for Jesus to be Lord to you. For Jesus to be Lord means that we don't follow him because on each issue he makes the most sense to us or because we immediately agree with what he says. In fact, a lot of what he says rubs us the wrong way. We follow Jesus because he is Lord and because his word is sovereign in our lives. I would very humbly suggest to you that if you are the kind of person that has to be convinced on each and every issue before you will follow what Jesus says, you don't understand what it means for Jesus to be Lord. Jesus didn't come to give like suggestions for living that you consider and you evaluate and then if you agree with him and ratify it, then you'll put it into practice. He didn't come to have a democracy where you vote and give referendums on what you like and what you don't like. For Jesus to be Lord means that you trust him. You trust that because he's God and because he's Lord, that he makes the rules and he's the creator and we follow what he says regardless of how it strikes us at first. I've noticed that a lot of people feign love and respect for this book, the Bible. But you can see they don't really love and respect this book because of their attitude toward passages like this one. A lot of people will hear this and they will run out immediately and find somebody in some commentary who will explain away what Peter says here, why Peter doesn't really mean what he says. Romans 1 calls that the suppression of truth. Peter will call that twisting the scriptures to your own destruction. And by the way, as far as our culture having moved beyond this, I would just encourage you just very soberly to think about the condition of marriages in our culture right now. And then ask yourself, are we really in a place to say that we've moved beyond all this stuff? I mean, divorce rates are at an all-time high. More and more people just aren't getting married because they don't even feel like dealing with the whole process. Saw a study this week that said that in our area here, 41% of the children that are born in this area are now born out of wedlock, mostly into single-parent homes. So I would just say that maybe we haven't moved beyond this as far as we think we have. And, and, and by the way, I'll just say this. For a lot of us that are married, it seems that, 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 that when I get familiar with marriages, even ones in our church, we got a lot of situations where people are living together as roommates, and they've learned how to like forge the peace in the house, but they're living two separate lives, going two separate directions. It's not that, that, that beauty and that oneness that you anticipated when you were dating and getting engaged and thought about being married. So again, I would just suggest to you that maybe we not brush this all so quickly as if we had matured past it and we're all so blissfully happy in our marriages and so is our culture. You say, well, yeah, but this passage is going backwards. It's going back into old chauvinistic patriarchy. No, most of you have never really seen this lived out in the way I'm going to explain it to you, which is how I think Peter meant it. In fact, it reminds me of what G.K. Chesterton, the famous British um, philosopher theologian said at the end of the 19th century he said he said the christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting it's been left un uh, hold on let me get this right the christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting it is found diff no it is it is found difficult and left untried all right here we go ready the christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting it has been found difficult and left untried that's what he says. I think that probably would apply to what we're talking about right here. 
So I would just say to you, at least hear me out. Hear me out with an open heart. And think about the fact, that the sounds going to sound sacrilegious for me to say it, but think about the fact that maybe, if you're a big skeptic, maybe, just maybe, God's ways are better than your ways after all. Okay? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. All right? So let's start with that word, likewise. What does the word likewise mean? Well, likewise means in the same way. If you remember, Peter's been talking about various relationships and earthly institutions that God has set up on earth. Things like, remember, government. Things like authority, structures. And, and, and what Peter explained to us in chapter 2 was that God has a couple of purposes for those. One of his purposes is to reveal himself. He reveals himself in the created order, shows us dimensions of him. Our earthly relationships become tangible demonstrations of parts of his character. His other purpose was to keep order on the earth. Likewise, in the same way, marriage is an earthly institution that God has set up to reveal himself and to provide stability. For both of those reasons, Peter says, God gave the man a leadership role to play in the home. This has, listen, nothing to do with women being inferior. There is no hint of that in this passage. In fact, it's downright denied. Peter says to the husbands, verse 7, your wives are heirs with you of the grace of life. The promises and the privileges of salvation are equal, which means that men and women are essentially equal. When God talks about the creation of the male and female in Genesis 1.27, it says he created them both in the image of God, male and female. There were parts of the image of God that were displayed in the man. There were some parts that were displayed in the woman, but they were both made in the image of God, which makes them equal in essence. Right? So there is equality in essence. There is not the slightest hint of inferiority because we have a common creation, the image of God, and a common redemption, salvation through Jesus Christ. You say, well, what about that line about them being the weaker vessel? Doesn't that imply inferiority? No, that's not what that means. I'm going to show you that here in a minute. Okay, you say, well, yeah, but, but if the husband is given the leadership role, that implies that he is superior. No, as I've pointed out to you before, even in the Trinity, there is submission. The Trinity is the, the idea, the doctrine that the Bible teaches that there's one God, only one God, but he exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the Son, made very clear that he was submitted to God the Father. So what you've got is you've got Jesus, who is fully God, right? He's equal with God, but he has submitted himself to the Father in the role that he plays in the Trinity. So you can't say that submission implies inequality because Jesus is fully God and submitted to the Father. Equal in essence, different in role. Same thing in marriage. God ordained marriage to reveal himself. Men and women do that through different ways. And when you mess with that, you're messing with how God intended for us to learn some things about himself. So don't say submission makes you inferior because that would be what we would call a Christological heresy. You'd be saying that Jesus is inferior to the Father by virtue of the fact that he's submissive to the Father, which would mean you were saying that Jesus is less than God and Jesus can't be less than God because Jesus is fully God because the Trinity is one God, three persons. So it's more than just like, you know, a difference of opinion. We're talking about the very nature of God here. God is fully God in all the persons. It's not three different gods. It's one God. Equal in essence, difference in roles. There's something about this that reveals God to us. There's also a practical dimension to this. I mentioned it's how God keeps order. It's like when two cars are merging into one lane. you got to know who has the right-of-way or you're going to have an accident. 
there is a pattern that God set so that men and women could live together in peace and harmony. That doesn't mean, by the way, that women are not to lead in the workplace or the government or society. That's not what this passage is talking about. It doesn't say women be subject to men. His only arena that he's talking about here is the home. So I talk with girls and I'm like, well, I don't really trust men. I don't either. You only need to trust one, your husband. That's it. You're like, you don't understand, you don't trust men? Good. You understand the doctrine of total depravity. I, I get that. I don't trust men either. It's only one that he's talking about, and that is your husband. You say, well, the guy that I'm married to doesn't deserve my submission. That's not the point. Jesus does. It's not about what your husband deserves. It's about what Jesus commands. Your husband might not deserve your submission, but Jesus does. And a few weeks ago, if you remember, I, I explained to you how Peter talked about our lives being like spiritual sacrifices that we offer to Jesus. Your submission to your husband is like a sacrifice that you offer to Jesus. Your husband may not be worthy of it, but Jesus most certainly is. And you were saying, Jesus, this is in response to you, to your command and what you're worthy of. Now, before we go any further in this, let's take a look at the instruction that Peter gives to the husbands. Because you've got to put these together to make the whole thing make sense. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Jump down there. 1 Peter 3, 7. Give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. All right, first, there's that difficult phrase, weaker. I skipped it and told you I'd come back to it and you thought I was lying, but here I am, okay? This is not weaker in terms of intelligence or even capacities for leadership or wisdom. Commentators say that it means three different things, okay? Number one, first of all, women are, wives are usually, literally, physically weaker. The word vessel that he attaches weaker to is a word that's used all throughout the Bible and it's almost always a reference to the human body. Generally speaking, most husbands can overpower their wives. Generally speaking, and I've seen a few of you girls that could give your husbands a run for your money, but, but generally speaking, men are physically more powerful than their wives, so that would be the first thing that he, he means there. Number two, they are weaker in position of authority, right? I mean, he's just spent six verses explaining that wives should be subject to their husband, so positionally, they are weaker, so that's another reference that he has. Thirdly, it could mean, could Weaker in terms of the way that women are wired emotionally. Women are, generally speaking, more sensitive and more intuitive than men are. I don't really feel like there's a whole lot of disagreement about this. I've heard it described in a number of different ways. One is that you know, men are like waffles. You ever heard this analogy? Waffles, because you, you know, waffles, you got various compartments, and you can pour syrup in one compartment, and it won't get over in another compartment, and that's how guys are. Because you know, they got something going on in, in one part of their life, and it doesn't affect the other parts of their lives. They just kind of section it off. Whereas women, in contrast, are more like spaghetti, so that, you know, this, on this part of the plate actually connects way over here to this part of the plate, and nothing is ever going on in isolation. Um, uh, here's an example. Um, my wife and I, if I'm having a bad day, if Veronica and I aren't getting along, I think, well, let's just have sex and forget about it. Let's just start over. Sex is like the reset button. It's like reboot. You know, it's like taking a hot shower after a long day. You just kind of, you know, wash all the stress off of you and the difficulty. That's just how most guys work. Unfortunately, that's not how she works. For her, sex is like the topping on a Sunday. There has to be a lot of sweetness under it building up to it. Guys, that is a great analogy, okay? You got to write that down and think about it. It's got to be a lot of sweetness building up to it all day for it to be the right topping on that Sunday. 
I've shown you this before, but this is how, you ever remember this? This is the control panel for men and women. Guys have one switch. Right? We all know what that is. And then women, it's got, I don't even know what these dials do. I just know that sometimes when I turn them, things turn on. It's like the remote control to my TV. I just, I just press buttons until something comes on. I don't know. Right? Right, so the flip side, the flip side of that, though, is that women are usually able to intuit and to feel things that guys are often blind to. Any guy that I've ever talked to is honest about his marriage, says that, yes, my wife is able to pick up on things, nuances, pick up on relational clues that I'm usually completely oblivious to. So if that is the case, think of this word weaker almost in terms of how you'd say uh, the difference between a crowbar and a thermometer. Right? I mean, a crowbar is the kind of thing you pry a door open with. You don't want to take a thermometer and try, try to pry a door open because it'll break. It's weaker in that sense. But the thermometer is also able to pick up some nuances that the crowbar is, is not really attuned to. You, know, if you, stick, you can't stick a crowbar in your mouth or your rear end and figure out what your temperature is. <laughs> but a thermometer, on the other hand, that's the kind of thing that picks up those kinds of temperature differences or the difference between a thermos and a wine glass a thermos you know you throw it in the back of your pickup truck it's got old stale coffee in it and it's fine but a wine glass is the kind of thing you keep the finest of beverages in hebrew scholars say that you can even see this in how god describes the original creation of men and women there are two different words that are used in hebrew to describe how men and women are created when god created the man the the, the hebrew word that he used was bara. But I know that all the Hebrew words I say all sound like, you know, like I, I put this strange intonation with them. Um, that's because Hebrew is a very guttural language. But I just, and, and that just sounds like what God did with the man. It's just, but I. It's just like <laughs> spit and dirt and God makes the man. That's what the, the implication is. But when he gets around to talking about the creation of a woman, he uses a Hebrew word that means crafted or designed. He fashioned her. I, I like to think of it like the difference between a Jeep and a Ferrari. Right, a Jeep, you, you, know, you take it off-road, you beat it up, you get it dirty. Who cares? You kind of like it that way. You don't want to get into your Jeep and have it smell like the perfume counter at Nordstrom's. You, you, you like it to have a certain rugged quality. Right? Ferraris, though, you don't take that off-roading. It's well-crafted. It's got nice lines. You just want to look at it. That's what you do. That's reality, right? Girls are designed differently than guys. If a girl wears skin-tight pants, that's a problem for most guys. If I wore skinny jeans up here, most of you girls would either burst out laughing or throw up, and probably a combination of the two. Wearing skinny jeans is wrong for both guys and girls, but for entirely different reasons. For girls, it's wrong because it's tempting. For guys, it's wrong because it's nauseating, right? right? So he says weaker vessel. Think of it in those terms, weaker in terms of physical, actual physical characteristics, weaker in terms of position the first six verses, and perhaps he means weaker in terms of the emotional sensitivity that she's designed with. So he says to the husband, as the weaker vessel, you must honor her. Honor here, by the way, means prefer her. It's a different word for honor than that which he used in chapter 2 when he was talking about the government authorities. In Greek, this word honor means, 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 means prioritizing her, to prefer her, to use husbands, listen, to use your position of strength any position of authority that you do have to serve her, not yourself, like Christ did for you. Both of you are to preach the gospel to the world in how you relate to each other. The wife, by how she submits. The husband, by how he serves. 
Now, let's put all that together, and let me show you what this means, and then I'm going to give you a few examples. And then, I'm going to show you a couple other verses that he gives, and then I'm going to bring up the varsity squad here on the stage. My wife is going to come up, and she's going to do a little question and answer, because I feel like it would probably be better coming from her perspective on some of this stuff than mine. Uh, so that's what's coming here toward, toward the end. All right, so let me put this together for you a little bit, though. Men, you should never lead independent of your wife. Your leadership is not something that is independent of your wife. You weren't given this role because you make better decisions. For many of you men, you don't make better decisions. Some of your wives are better with money. You get an unexpected bonus, and, and, and you start thinking immediately of buying a couple of new pieces to add to your, your deer head collection. And she's like, you know, we probably ought to be saving for this or for that, and, 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 and she is a gift of God to you because she sees certain things better than you do she is a gift of God to save you from your own stupidity. And if you don't listen to her and consult with her, you're a fool. I talk to my wife about everything that we are, are doing in our family. It is rare that we are not able to talk and to pray and, be, and able to come to consensus. And by the way, if not, if we can't come to consensus on things, almost every time I will postpone the decision while we pray about it and we keep talking it out until we come to consensus. I can count to you on the number of times, and I'll get to this in a minute, when I've actually had to say, no, this is what we got to do. By the way, the husband is never told to demand submission from his wife. Never. The wife may be told to submit, but the husband is never told to demand it. You look, every passage in the New Testament that talks about this, it's always something to the wife, not to the man. So in other words, it's never his to demand from her, it is hers that she gives to him. Men, you are to use your position of authority to serve her, not yourself. When we can't come to an agreement, she and I, I have to decide, is this a situation where I really have to think of the best interest of the family and make a decision that she disagrees with? If it's not in the best interest of the family, I am to honor her and serve her and prefer her and to prioritize her every single time. Let me give you a few examples, okay? Because I don't want you to think of this all up here. Let's get it down into the nitty gritty. It's date night. And we can't decide where to go to eat. She wants to go Italian because she always wants to go Italian. And I want red meat. I want steak, okay? Who wins? Easy. She wins. She wins. Honor her. Prefer her means that she wins. Picking colors and furniture out in our house. Who wins? She wins because I honor her and I prefer her. I just say, please don't let every room in the house be pink because that would be harmful to me and my son. But other than that, she gets to make the call, okay? You got an extra $300 in your budget one month, and she wants a new dress, and you want golf clubs, and you can't get both. What do you do, men? Easy, easy, that's an easy one. You honor her, you prefer her, you serve her, that's right. I want to go out with the guys. She needs me to stay home and do something with the kids, and she's not being unreasonable. Easy, guys. Easy. She wins. By the way, who's got the harder role here? Who's got the harder role? When I ask her to submit to me, it's when I'm thinking of the best interest of our family, not my own best interest, which, again, I could count on one hand the number of times that has actually happened. Hey, I'll give you a few examples. Um, I had a friend, when this happens, I had a friend, pastor friend, who had five children, um, church, you know, big church, kind of like this one, and um, his wife had all kinds of demands on her. It's just the pastor's wife, as they often do. And she really, as her kids were getting old enough to go to school, she started to feel like, I need to homeschool my kids because, you know, we can't really afford private school, and I've just got to do this. And 
and, and all that, and he could just see that it was headed for a train wreck because she was not in a position to homeschool and it was going to destroy her. So he goes and says, I, I just don't think this is healthy for you or for our family. So this guy goes out, he interviews all the schools, both private and public. He comes to her and says, I know you want to homeschool. I know you're driven by guilt in this, but this is what I think we need to do. And we're going to figure out how in our budget or through scholarships that we can get these kids into a school that we're going to feel good about. That is a time where he exercised spiritual leadership, but it wasn't to serve himself, it was to serve her, okay? I'll give you another one here. Um, my wife, uh, my wife has, uh, we have four kids, she didn't have them, I have. Uh, we have four kids. We have four kids. She is also a pastor's wife. There's a, we have people at our house over all the time. And I noticed my wife was just unbelievably stressed out trying to keep the house up in a certain condition in order to have people over. So I'm like, hey, have we ever thought about getting like, you know, somebody to come in once a month and just kind of do a deep cleaning just to help you? Just sort of, uh, you know, just, just occasionally. You go, well, we can't afford that. And she's right. You know, we can't really afford that. But that's come back after a while. And I was like, no, we're going to figure out how to afford it because you need to have this help in order to be able to do what you, what you do. That's a time to exercise spiritual leadership in a situation like that. But it's not to serve myself. It's to serve her. My wife has a tendency to overcommit. Uh, my wife is everybody's friend. Everybody loves her. Uh, she has a hard time saying no to, to anybody. Uh, she and I both have that problem, but for entirely different reasons. I can't say no because I want you to like me. She won't say no because she genuinely likes you. All right, so there's a, there's a, there's, there's a difference. And so she overcommits out of the goodness of her heart. There are times I have to say, hey, listen, I know that you're driven by your love for these people and and you're everybody's friend, but, but we can't do this. Those are the times that I ask her to submit. Guys, listen, listen. I lose a thousand arguments. I will honor her in a thousand decisions so that I can speak with authority into the right ones. Some of you guys assert yourself in all the wrong ones. You assert yourself in all these wrong ones where you serve yourself, and then you're totally absent from the right ones where you should be protecting your family and serving them. I love this statement. Guys, you ought to write this down. I promise you to get your points for your wife. If you pull out a pen right now and start writing this down. Spiritual leadership is not licensed to do what you want to do. It is empowerment to do what you ought to do. Spiritual leadership is essentially not a license to do what you want to do. It's empowerment to do what you ought to do, which is to love, to serve, to honor, and protect your family. Guys, listen, I should lead my wife in a way that her submission to me is a blessing, not a burden. Here's one. Guys, a guy believes that they're called to the mission field and the girl doesn't. What do you do? Well, first you talk about it extensively. Maybe she's got valid reasons why. Maybe a lot of times guys get, you know, they'll be flighty and spiritual and they're not really thinking through all the things. And maybe she's got some valid points. And you give it time to come to consensus. But to the wife, listen, after you make your reasons known, at the end of the day, that's one of those arenas that you've got to make your reasons known, but then you have to be subject to him. You say, well, but I disagree. Submission implies disagreement, right? It's not submission if it's not agreement. If you only submit when you agree, that's not submission. It's agreement, right? Submission implies disagreement. How about this one? You need a new car, and the guy wants to buy a big truck, and the girl wants to buy a little gas saver golf cart-looking thing. And the guy's like, well, we can afford it. It's, you know, it's useful. Plus, I just don't like the little golf cart-looking cars. And the girl's like, well, it's not practical. It just, you know, it's, it, it, it will lose money on gas. So what do you do in that situation? Well, you talk it out thoroughly. Guy, you need to listen. Maybe you're being an idiot. Maybe you're really not thinking about money. Girl, maybe your security is in money. Maybe you have too much of an idolatry of money, and 
Maybe you need to recognize that your husband feels like a pansy whipping around town in this little Eurotrash-looking car, and it's selfish of you to insist he drive one. But let's just say that you can't reach agreement. What do you do? Girls, again, you make your reasons known. Guys, you listen to her as a gift from God. You honor her. You prefer her. Then at the end of the day, wife, you have to trust him with the judgment on that. Now, I know some of you, you, you're sitting there going, oh, my gosh, my husband is so irresponsible. He would wreck us. You have to let him answer to God. I love what Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers, says. He says, spiritual leadership is God telling the woman to duck so he could punch the man. (laughs) God telling a woman to duck so he could punch the man. Listen, a lot of men, listen, a lot of men don't lead because they've never been put in a position to lead. Their overprotective mothers always made decisions for them. They lived in the basement until they were 34 years of old. Their mom always protected them from all the consequences of their decision. They're never forced to act like men. Then they get married to a girl who basically takes over. And listen, girl, I'm not telling you it was your fault. I'm just saying that you've got to create a vacuum of leadership and force them to grow up. When my wife does this, not that I was 34 playing video games in my mom's basement, but when my wife does this to me, it puts so much pressure on me. She'll say something like, she'll like, well, this is what I think. But you know what? At the end of the day, you got to make this decision, and you got to answer to God for it. That forces me to start thinking like a man. I can't hide in that group think. You know, we're all like, nobody's really in charge. We're all kind of in this together. It's like, no, it's on my head. It's on my head. That forces me to grow up and be the leader that God has told me to be. One of our pastors says it this way. Submission is not about what women can or can't do. It's about what men are called to do and don't. All right? Again, let me real quick, I want you to look at two more verses in here, and then I'm going to bring my, the varsity squad up here and let her give you some perspective on these. All right, but real quick, go, go to verse 3. Go to verse 3. Slight change of topic, but you'll see how it all ties together. Verse 3, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person um, of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Right, so what Peter now is doing is talking to wives about two different kinds of beauty. There's a kind of beauty that the world that we live in always prioritizes and tells you to go after. It's external. It deals with clothing and how in shape your body is and the, 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 the money value of your jewelry. But then Peter talks about another kind of beauty, the beauty that comes from Christ's likeness. That word gentle, by the way, that word gentle is a word that's used throughout the Gospels repeatedly to describe Jesus. So he's saying there is a greater beauty that is at work inside you. It is Jesus' beauty, and that is a beauty that never perishes. He said you ought to prioritize that kind of beauty because in God's sight it's very precious, and you see the implication, in your husband's eyes it will become more precious as well. My wife is still, I believe, very physically beautiful, but she's had four children, and sometimes I look at her. And here is a girl who has given her life sacrificially and her body to serve our family and me. There is a Christ-like beauty that exudes out of her even as she ages. She is more beautiful now than the day that I married her. And that's not sentimental like garbage that you throw out when you know you don't really mean it. She is more beautiful to me now than the day I married her because there is a Christ-likeness an imperishable beauty that is growing in her and exuding out of her. Some of the most beautiful women I know are older because they have this inner beauty that exudes from them. On the other hand, 
There are some of you that have been so dependent on external beauty. When you were young, you wore tight clothes and lots of makeup. Then you started to get older, but because that was all you had, you got desperate. You start to dress inappropriately for somebody your age, and as I mentioned, start to do weird things to your face, trying to hold on to a beauty that ultimately is perishable. Peter says there's a greater beauty, a, a sweeter beauty that you need to focus on because it's a beauty that is imperishable and begins to exude from you. It's precious in God's sight, and as you're seeing, he's saying it'll change your husband too because it'll become precious in his. Y'all, this is great. You see what Peter's done? He's applied the doctrine of the resurrection even to physical beauty. I've told you this before. I don't want to get off on a soapbox, but real quick. I told you that evangelical Christians like us have trouble understanding where the resurrection fits into how we see the world. So we know we honor the resurrection one time at Easter. That's when you get your resurrection sermon, and basically it just exists to prove that Christianity is right. But otherwise, when we're talking about the gospel, we always talk about the cross. Oh, Jesus died for you. When you're explaining the gospel, you're like, Jesus died for your sins in your place. And he resurrected. Don't really know what that means, but, you know, I'm glad he did it. What Peter has done, listen, he's take, when Luke summarized the message of the apostles in one word, in, in the book of Acts, he used the word resurrection. Here you're seeing an example of what that looks like. Literally the entire book of 1 Peter. Every single truth he teaches goes back to the resurrection. He is saying even your physical beauty, you ought to see it through the lens of the resurrection because you are seeing that while the outward body can fade, there is an inner beauty that you ought to hold on to because that exudes out of you and it goes on forever and it is sweeter and more beautiful and it is imperishable. So he says, focus on that resurrection beauty that's at work within you. Okay, all right, that's the end of verse four. Now, again, I told you that I thought the varsity squad would help uh, in giving you some perspective. Uh, so I'm gonna ask my wife if she will come up here and join me and I'm gonna ask her a few questions. Would you mind welcoming at all of our campuses? Welcome my wife to the stage. How you doing? Great. All right. You ready? Ready as I'll ever be. All right, so let me, I got three questions for you, maybe four. Um, There's only three that I like talked with you about. <laughs> it'll be the lightning round, okay? <laughs> Um, so here's question number one. Uh, a lot of, by the way, these aren't questions that I've gotten directly from you, but over the years, these are questions that I've gotten from you, like in, in many situations. And so I ran back through my emails and racked my brain, and these are questions I think that I that I've gotten. Question number one is um, in First Peter three, it talks about a quiet spirit, and there are some women who hear that and what they think is doormat. Um, and they'll say, well, I don't really have a naturally, like, you know, really kind of quiet personality. And, you know, some of them know this, but you're not exactly the, the quietest per person. <laughs> you know, you have more of a robust personality. Let's, let's say it that way. Um, so the question is, can a woman with a strong personality still have a quiet spirit like Peter's talking about? Good job with that landmine there. <clears throat> Um, I, this, is, this is a question that is close to my heart because, as J.D. said, um, I knew really early on in my life that I fell into the loud personality category. And um, so I would, you know, read this passage, and it was sort of distressing to me because I sort of thought, you know, what, is, what am I supposed to do with that? I, on Sesame Street, you learn that, you know, opposites are loud and quiet, you know, so what am I left with to do? And Jenny will tell you, even if I were to try and be more quiet, I would be still almost entirely unsuccessful because most of the time I'm, 
loud and don't even realize it. <laughs> so it's not really going to be a successful attempt on my part. When she talks on the phone, I, mean, I don't even know why you're picking up the phone. Your friends can hear you wherever you're talking to them. <laughs> Just with my mom and my sister. <laughs> so, um, but I have come to, to, I've come to understand this passage um, the way it was meant, I think, over the years, and uh, have made my peace with it. And so, um, the, the point is, it, it doesn't matter about what your outward personality is. I have realized that God has made each of us a certain way. He's made me a certain way. And that's not to say that every inclination that I've ever had is right or that I don't distort it, distort it the way he's made me with sin, because I do. But he has made me a certain way because it brings him joy. And I don't need to make, remake myself into some other model that I think is somehow better um, because that's just not the case. The passage is talking about your spirit. And it's actually possible, more than possible, um, to be outwardly quiet or reserved um, and yet have anything but a quiet and gentle spirit that this passage is talking about. The question is, um, are you surrendered to God? And then if you're married, this passage is connecting it directly to how you treat and relate to your husband. So are you surrendered to God, submitted to God, and are you submitting to your husband? So it has nothing to do with the outward expression. Give me an example of that for you. Um, you know, I think sometimes J.D. has told me before, um, like he has told me before, like we've left a social situation and I would be thinking, uh, early on in our marriage especially, which wasn't always roses, um, you know, what was he, what bothered him? Trying to figure out what had bothered him that night or something if we were out or something. And then when he would tell me what had bothered him, I would vehemently deny that it bothered him at all or that he felt disrespected and tell him how dumb it was that he felt that way and how clearly it shouldn't have, you know, affected him that way. And, I mean, it's really disrespectful. And so, you know, if he were to tell me when I tell him I feel sad or lonely that it's really dumb that I feel that way and explain it how logically I shouldn't feel that way, I would be really offended. And so I had to learn after, like, this happened repeatedly, if I wanted to live in peace and harmony with him, I needed to hear what he was saying to me and act accordingly, whether I sort of felt that way or not. I mean, you know, this is, it's, it's, it is what it is. So, yeah, I guess that's a good example. Good job. <laughs> Question number two. Um, it's about submission. Uh, passage obviously talks about it a lot. What, is it, what does it mean to you? Tell them what it means to you to submit, and then do you feel inferior when you do? That's, that's a good one. Um, so I think an example of when I've had to submit, um, it, like J.D. said earlier, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that often. But <clears throat> an example was about a year ago when we moved, and uh, J.D. felt very strongly where we lived before that we needed to move to be closer to the church. He doesn't really have a 9-to-5 job, so he wanted to be able to be home as much as was like physically possible. And so he felt like we needed to move to make that more possible. I, on the other hand, did not feel like we needed to move. I felt like we lived close enough. Um, I loved our cul-de-sac lot. We had a great fence, and we had neighbors with kids our kids' ages. I mean, I just, you know, I just didn't feel that way. Plus, <laughs> we had a super target two miles away. Who needs dad home when you got a super target two miles away is all I'm saying. So anyway, after um, several years of me just trying to wait him out, and I guess thinking he would forget about it or something, pretty sure he was doing the same thing for that time. I finally realized it wasn't going to happen, and we were feeling the exact same ways, and so I was going to have to submit. Um, 
he didn't say that. He didn't demand that. I just, the Lord made it clear to me, and I just knew it was what I had to do. So we moved. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I still have to go visit my super target. I miss it so much. <laughs> so I still miss my super target desperately, but he is home far more than he ever was before. It makes him so much happier. My kids see him so much more, and they are so much happier. It's a pretty good trade. So, so the second part of that question, do you feel inferior when you do? Uh, no, um, definitely not. I mean, like J.D. mentioned earlier, when I can manage it, and the few times I've had to do it, I feel like I'm in good company because you see the best example of it in the Trinity. And so when I can manage to do it in the right way, I see it as a Christ-like attribute, and I see it as, as a victory. So, um, so no. I think that would be the best advice that I can give to single women in here, young single women. Um, and that is, J.D. makes it easy also. On top of that, J.D. makes it easy for me to, to follow him. So I would tell you as a, as a single woman, marry someone that you will find it easy to follow, and you won't end up in a situation where you're like, really fighting this really difficult battle to submit because you've married someone that you respect and trust and you can do it. Yeah, and that's probably a really important point to kind of, because I know a lot of this is, seems to be for married people, but um, I mean, we, talk to, we talk to single girls all the time who this is a compromise situation for them, and they almost get angry when you start suggesting that they ought to be waiting for a better spiritual leader. Uh, you know, why would you, I love this guy, you know, it, like this is a minor issue. You know, like, you know, the, you're going to bring kids, if you have them, underneath the direction of this guy. If you're going to obey the Bible, do you really want to put yourself in a situation like, like that? And I think, I mean, I think that's a huge issue. You realize that it's not, God tells you that for your good to wait for the guy who will lead spiritually and that you would joyfully be able to follow. Yeah, so, definitely. So you don't feel inferior. Tell them that story that Karis, um, about how she sees this, because that's, that's an awesome story. To you. <laughs> no, no, they'll, they'll like it, I promise. Okay, since we're talking about submission. Um, so. That's good. Good example. So this was years ago. My oldest daughter is eight now, but I was taking her to preschool one day. I can't believe I ever told you this story. Um, so this is years ago, and we weren't talking about anything related to this. She was just pulling one of those kid moments that kids will do. Out of the blue, I, don't, I have no idea where this came from. She says, she's in the back of the car. Mom, did God put Daddy in charge because he's taller than you? I was like, no. And I'm thinking, oh, it's a teachable moment. Take advantage of the teachable moment. You know, like, okay. So I'm kind of racking my brain thinking how to, like, answer. And she says, so she jumps in before I can say anything. And she says, oh, well, did he put him in charge because he's stronger than you? No, okay. So I'm like, you know, really trying to put my answer together. You know, it's kind of early in the morning and whatever. And um, I can see her little brain working, and I know that she's getting ready to ask me, did he put him in charge because he's smarter than you? <laughs> and I'm like, no, don't let her get there, because how are you going to, like, curb that? You know, so she, she comes out with, did he put him in charge because he's smarter than you? And I was like, no. <laughs> I scored higher than him on the SAT, so, you know, take that. Only by 10 points, and because they changed the standard between when I took it and when you took it. All right, question number three. Last question here. How well, okay, this passage, verses three and four, talk about inner beauty and outer beauty and talking about focusing on inner beauty. Um, tell them what that means to you, and then maybe a comment about how you feel like 
women at our church do with, with that whole thing? <clears throat> say what I'm not courageous enough to say. Well, when I'm finished, my email, if you have any questions, is dannyfranks at summitrdu.com. So. Um, first, I really feel like I should confess to you that um, this is coming from someone who herself struggles valiantly with trying to dress with, in, in a way that I think is fashionable, attractive, hopefully cute, and yet still modest. And that gets harder all the time, I think, with some of our fashions. Um, I'm definitely constantly fighting the battle of, um, I'd rather be found in style a lot of times, just in my heart. I'd rather be found in style or more fashionable and let the men around me, you know, worry about themselves than be found wanting in the style department or the fashion department and, and honor God and honor the men around me. And that's, that's just something I, I struggle with all the time. So I want you to know that, that I understand the, the battle and um, I understand the struggle. Just a few weeks ago, to be really honest, I brought home, I, had, I put on some jeans and JD said, uh, those are kind of tight, aren't they? And I'm thinking internally, my internal dialogue is, tight? Well, I mean, they're fitted. They're not tight, though. They're not too tight. Plus, I mean, I really like these. Please, please, I want to keep them. But I could tell by the look on his face that, that it pained him to say anything anyway, and, and they had to go back. So that's just so you know where I'm coming from. I kind of want to tell you, though, that I'm, I work at the first impressions, um, first time guest tent, so now I'm sort of charged with like watching the people coming in, trying to find people that I can um, see need help and are lost or new or whatever. And so I think my answer would be some of us <laughs> are doing a lot better than others. Um, can I be Sister V here? I know JD is Uncle JD, but I'm like much younger than him, so I'm going to be your Sister V here maybe for a minute. Not so young that it's sketchy, by the way. Just. <laughs> We were within the range of, <laughs> of okay. I just look a lot younger, so I'll be Sister V. Um, girls, single girls, the men that you are attracting with the sort of new trend of like the tights worn as pants, that thing, and, and this, you know, vacuum packed jeans and things that are very in style right now, those are not the men that you are going to want to be married to. They just aren't. Um, take it from me. Think about you. Think future here. It's, it's hard to do when you're young, I know, because I've, I've, you know, I was there. But um, when you've been married for 11 years and you've had his four children, um, do you want to be worried about him and and know that you don't look the same as you did when you attracted him with those things? No. You definitely want to be married to someone who was um, not drawn to the person showing the most in the room. You probably want to be married to the one who, you know, is dressed terribly and likes you when you're dressed terribly. But um, it just, just think future. And once you've had four kids and when you lay down on the bed, your stomach lies down politely next to you, <laughs> you want to know that he was not attracted to you just for your cleavage or your tush. You want to know he was attracted. Did you just say the word tush? <laughs> I have a three-year-old. Give me a break here. You know that what... He was attracted to you in the first place for was not that, and it's not what's keeping him then either. So. <laughs> yeah, tell him, um, get, get, get any words that you would have, we gotta do this sort of quickly, but any words that you would have just for, 
just a general encouragement for the women and and I thought there's probably some implications for us too as guys on this. Yeah. So just two last thoughts that I mentioned to JD. Um, Thank you. Ladies, I think, uh, I think I've dressed um, modestly in the past more, well, not think, I, I know I dressed modestly in the past when I managed it more out of just severe, a result of severe training by my mom and dad that I'm thankful for, um, but it was more out of just a result of that, a sense of duty than anything else. Um, but as I've been in the ministry with JD over the years, there's been something else that has become a big motivator for me now, and that's something I would love to share with you because it's really helped me, and that is um, dealing with women who have been devastated by their husband's addiction to pornography and them explaining to me and, and sharing with me how, um, how difficult it was to be out and seeing the women that were screaming, ju- just screaming for men to look at them and lust after their bodies and how when they came to church, it wasn't really a haven at all. There were just as many women in the church with bare backs, bare cleavage, see-through, tights worn as pants, you know, um, as in the church as there were outside of the church, and how that was just really, really hard for them and their husbands. And when it was my friend, it changed it, and I wanted to help them as much as I could with whatever I could manage to do for them and wear and not wear. You know, if I were in their position, I would want them to do the same for me. And I didn't want to be the person that was, like, causing strife in their marriage, you know? And so... I think that's something that's really helped me, and I hope maybe you can think that way too because um, it's real. I mean, there are men here today that are fighting that battle right here today. So if you think that way, I think it can help you. Um, the other last thing I'll say is, is to the men, and, the, and that is this. We need your support in this. We really do. Um, we need you to take inventory of the women that you gravitate towards in your life and if they think if they dress modestly or immodestly. And if it's more the latter, if they dress immodestly, change your ways. Um, we need you to help us just like you want us to help you in your battle to not, you know, lust after women and by what we wear. You want us to help you with that. We need you to help us in fighting that battle of not vying for your attention by who you give the attention to. Um, I love what, I mean, J.D.'s a man. I love what he does, you know, when we run into someone either in the movies or even out or something um, who's not wearing something that, you know, wearing enough clothes or something. I mean, he notices. He's a man. But after the reflexive notice, he always goes, like, with the same way every time. I love it. He goes, oh, whoa, she's, like, not wearing enough clothes. (laughs) And he, like, you know, and, like, with a total disdainful look on his face. So he has trained himself to do that. And it always makes me feel like he values a woman in that moment who is wearing enough clothes, who is wearing modest things. And it it encourages me to do that. He's even, like, helped me when I'm choosing a bathing suit Choose one that is more modest and rather than one is, that is less modest. And so that's, that's what I call support. Tell the women in your life, if there's an appropriate moment to tell the woman in your life um, that you appreciate how she is dressing modestly, do it. I tell JD all the time that I need him to tell me that he still thinks I am sexy even when I'm choosing to wear something less revealing rather than more revealing because the world sure ain't telling me that. You, you, you probably should clarify that you mean husbands tell your wives that or a sister. We're not talking about going up to random women at the church. I mean, like... <laughs> There ain't no way I could lust for you wearing that. Thanks. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I mean, I mean, your, hus- your wife or your sister. Um, like I said, that's all I've got. If you have any thoughts and questions, email Danny Franks at Summit RD. <laughs> Thank you, babe. Thanks. Will y'all uh, let you know?
I appreciate it. Let me pull this together for you real quick by taking you back to the text one more time because I want you to see how all this ties together. I'm going to do this very briefly. Um, so these are the effects of when you live this way. There are three of them you see there, very briefly. Just I'm going to note them, give you a thought about them, and then we'll, we're going to end. Um, men, when you honor your wives, number one, your prayers are not hindered. Your prayers are not hindered. You see that in verse 7? That's a pretty dramatic statement, isn't it? That your relationship with your wife, when you are not to her what you should be, that your actual prayers to God are hindered. Can I tell you the internal logic of that? It's actually a general scriptural principle you'll find in a number of places. Um, when you approach God in prayer, right, you are approaching him from a position of weakness. God is in a position of strength. You are in a position of weakness. And you are asking God in prayer to help you in your position of weakness. What he's saying is, if you have used your position of strength, man, if you use your position of strength to serve yourself, why would you think God would use his position of strength to serve you? So he's saying, why would you expect God to be to you in a way that you aren't to others? Men, if you are dominating your wife, if you are serving yourself, if you are interested in what you have as opposed to sacrificially giving it up the way Christ gave it up for you, if you are not doing that with your family, don't expect God to hear your prayers. Because God's not going to use a position of strength to serve you in a way that you're not serving others. Does that make sense? My challenge to you is go home and ask your wife. Some of you men haven't had an answered prayer, a good one in a long time. If you're man enough, this will take some, some manness. You sit down with your wife and say, why isn't God answering my prayers? And you pull out a pen and a piece of paper and you get ready to write it down. Why isn't God answering my prayers? That's my challenge to you. Number two. Here's your second effect. You begin to live together. I was arrested by that phrase in verse 7, live together, because I, I remember I mentioned to you that there are so many marriages I find where it's a roommate situation, two people living two lives under the same roof. Peter, when he says live together, means that you're in this union, you're in this harmony together. Maybe some of you, listen, maybe, just maybe, some of you, the pitiful state of your marriage right now will maybe put you in a position where you would say, maybe God's ways are best after all. Maybe God has allowed your marriage to be as lousy as it is because he wants you to see something deeper, and that is his ways are best, and that through pursuing his path of obedience and blessing, you can have that marital union that you dreamed of when you were dating but have given up on since you got married. Here's the third effect. You see it there in verse 1 and verse 4. You preach the gospel to a cynical world. You preach the gospel to a cynical world. Listen, our marriages ought to be the greatest apologetic of the gospel. Apologetic means argument. Our, our marriages ought to be the greatest argument for the gospel of anything that we have in our community here. We preach the gospel to our community and our marriages in different ways. Men and how they serve, wives and how they submit. Peter is picking up on this theme. Have you seen it? We always think the way that we become convincing is by having better arguments than the other guys. So let's line up our smart guys and show why our smart guys are smarter than their smart guys. We think the way to win a cynical world is to have a charismatic speaker who tells funny and emotional stories. We think the way to attract the watching world is to do the best program, lights and music, of anybody. You know what that does? That gets bored Christians from other churches. That's all that does. You want to convince a true cynic, he says, there's a greater beauty, there's a more powerful beauty, and it doesn't come through how right you are, it comes from how much like Jesus you are, that gentle spirit. Because in there, you start to see the power of the resurrection. That's the power of the cross. There is a greater beauty, see, a greater beauty, a greater power that is in the power of the cross and resurrection. 
than in anything else. By the way, wives, do you see that in there where it said that if you want to change your husband, how do most of you try to change your husband? You nag him to death, right? Without a word, without a word. He says you'll change him. You think the way to change your husband is by beating him down and wearing him down through your constant complaining. A newsflash, it ain't working, and it ain't gonna work. Right, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and thinking you're gonna get different results. It ain't working. I don't care how many you know, blogs you make him read and how many te- you know, ways you compare him to other, other people, it ain't working. The way that you change him is through the power of grace. Because that Christ-like beauty transforms his heart. It's the hidden secret of gospel power. It's the cross and resurrection. Women, you ought to go home to your men and say this. How can I preach the gospel to you? Show me, tell me how to preach a wordless sermon about the generosity of the gospel. Men, you ought to do the same. How can I preach the gospel to you? What is it that I can do that would greater display the honor that Christ gives, the submission that Christ gives? Okay? That's my challenge. At all of our campuses, why don't you bow your heads with me and Let's end this way. Some of you, your marriages are in trouble. I know that. So can we start with the place we always should start with? And that is the acceptance given at the cross. Some of you feel guilty and beat up over this issue because of how bad you are in your marriage. Can I tell you that God accepts you based on Christ and not on how good your marriage is going. His acceptance is free. It is given as a gift. And that acceptance, that forgiveness, is going to become the power, the foundation for all the other changes. So will you receive that if you never have? Christ's forgiveness, free, given because of what he purchased for you on the cross, irrespective of how your marriage is going. And as you do that, will you then begin to pray for your marriage? I challenge you right now to lay your marriage on the altar at Jesus' feet. Just lay it there and say, Jesus, you're the healer. I need you to heal my marriage. Men, I want you to be doing this. Except, listen, rather than praying for your spouse to change, which is how we always pray, God, change this or this about her. Why don't you say, God, why don't you give me the Christ-like spirit to be able to honor her? Wife, God, would you give me the gentle Christ-like spirit that would allow me to submit to him? Why don't you focus on what God is doing in you and let God worry about your spouse? That's how you should pray for your marriage.